You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. Some of our audience has been asking us, what is the Forum exactly? Well, for over 31 years, the Forum on Workplace Inclusion, or the Forum for short, has served as a convening hub for those seeking to grow professional leadership and effectiveness skills in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or what we call DEI, by engaging people, advancing ideas, and igniting change. The Forum operates as an organization within Augsburg University, which is located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. However, the Forum's audience is international, offering a wide variety of DEI events, programs, and resources to businesses, professionals, and individuals around the world, all looking to grow professional leadership and effectiveness skills. We do this through our events and programs, our media platform, like our website, and our flagship event, the Annual Conference. If you'd like to learn more about the Forum on Workplace Inclusion, we encourage you to visit our website at forumworkplaceinclusion.org. Here are a few messages from the Forum before we start the show. Register for our next webinar, The Theory and Practice of Code Shifting, Fostering Equitable Intercultural Communities. The webinar is on Thursday, December 19th at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. Registration is free. This webinar will detail the United States Peace Corps' journey and approach to fostering working environments abroad where both the host country and U.S. staff can bring their full cultural selves to work. Registration is free at forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash webinar. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all of our listeners and subscribers. Your engagement with our podcast supports our growth and helps us reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. If you've already written a review, thank you, and please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or colleague. Word of mouth from our audience is the best way the forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Rue, Program Coordinator here at the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. Thank you for joining us for today's podcast, Building a Healthy Occupational Identity While Working in Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, with presenter Dr. John Anna Gantz of J. Gantz Consulting. Dr. John Anna Gantz is a highly analytical, data-focused pragmatist. Dr. Gantz looks for opportunities to turn theory and ideas into action. As an independent researcher and consultant, her passion lies in organizational development development and increasing the efficacy of mission-driven agencies. During her doctoral research, John Anna focused on the development of occupational and organizational identity in victim advocates and their agencies. She has used this research to develop tools and trainings that have helped individuals and organizations improve their work. In her work as a consultant and trainer, John Anna assists mission-driven individuals and agencies as they build their skills around maintaining healthy occupational and organizational identities. John Anna approaches every project and relationship with the philosophy of let's learn and do better together. In this episode, Dr. Gans will explore what occupational identity is and how it impacts every single part of our lives. Furthermore, how this impact is significantly amplified when the work is more than just a job. This episode will help you be able to name and explore the concept of occupational identities, identify two to three risks associated with unmanaged occupational identity, and select one to two concrete strategies on how to continue to develop and sustain a healthier connection to, the, to your jobs and or apply content to DEI work. Without further ado, I would like to hand things over to Dr. Gans. 
Thank you so much. I really appreciate being invited here because this truly is one of my absolute favorite conversational topics, which makes me an absolute hit at every party I go to. So I want to talk a little bit about how I got to this work, because I think it really helps set people up in understanding how you how you find out what occupational identity is and why it matters. So I started a doctoral program with no intent on studying occupational identity. And then I started to work as a domestic violence victim advocate. And a couple months into my job, I went to the phone store to redo my phone contract back when you had to sign two year contracts. And while I was there, there was a manager and then there was a new employee. And what's really important is that both of these were white appearing um, cisgender men. And when they were asking me about my work, because they were specifically trying to explore if they could get me any kind of deals or rates off on my contract, um, they asked me what it is that I did. And I very proudly replied where I worked. And I said, I work at the shelter. And they kind of both paused and the manager looked to the new, you know, much younger employee and said, do you know what that is? What is that? And I said, it is the county's only domestic violence shelter helping women and children leave domestic violence and seek healing and justice. And the manager kind of looked to this younger dude and I could see them both really uncomfortable. And he finally looked back at me and he said, oh, well, my wife would call you guys, but I keep her locked up in the basement. And they both started laughing. And I had no idea what to do. I was a pretty brand new advocate. I realized something weird had just happened and they had just made a joke about domestic violence and I just didn't know what to do. So I quickly wrapped up my transaction, got in my car and I drove to work. And I immediately went to my supervisor and I said, hey, something weird just happened to me. Can I talk to you about it? And she, of course, is like, oh my goodness, what's happened? And I explained to her what happened. And she kind of looked at me, kind of had this like look of, you know, resignation, but also kind of a little bit of a smirk. And she said, oh, that happens all the time. It's just part of the job. You'll get used to it. And when I started talking to other advocates, I found out they all had very similar uh, reactions um, from different folks and that they were all dealing with this struggle of like how do you introduce what you do to people when what you do disrupts cultural norms and so being an academic I immediately turned to the research and I'm like somebody has to have researched this and what I found out was nobody had in relationship to victim advocacy from what I could find and so being who I am I decided to read uh, just like redo all of my doctoral work. And I decided to actually study occupational identity development in domestic and sexual violence victim advocacy work. So that's how I got here. And I think that that really helps people see the ways in which our occupation really frames up how we interact with the social world around us. And so for the folks who listen to this podcast, you're working in diversity, equity, inclusion work, or you're really interested in DEI work. And so I want to actually ask you, wherever you are, to think about a couple of questions. So first, I want you to just think to yourself, or if you happen to be with a partner, talk with a partner. Why did you choose to work in diversity, equity, and inclusion?
So when you think that through, and when you have kind of those first thoughts like pop into your head, what were they? Did you think to yourself, I do it for the money. I do it for title or status. Or maybe you thought to yourself, oh boy, girl, I need health benefits and that's why I do my job. Maybe you thought about that you fell into it or it was the first job you got and you found out you loved it. My guess is for more of you, the thoughts you might have had would have fallen into something around, maybe it was because it's a political commitment to undoing systemic and interpersonal oppression and violence. So it's a political orientation. You might have thought, well, I'm directly impacted by these issues and nobody else is working on them, so I'm going to. You might have also thought to yourself, this is just a personal passion. This is what I truly am driven by. And ultimately, my guess is what you thought to yourself is something along the lines of you find the work to be deeply meaningful and important to you. So that gets me to the very first question to frame up some of the content of how we understand what is occupational identity is just the very question of why are we talking about jobs. So we're talking about jobs because work is a governing structure to our daily life. And that means that we rely on the idea of employment to help us make sense of and organize the entire lifespan. I want you to think about when you're talking with a kid, what's one of the first things you ask them to learn about who they are and what they're interested in? You probably ask something along the lines of, what do you wanna be when you grow up? And as we move through schooling, we constantly have this focus on what are you gonna do for a job? What's your career gonna be? And that continues across our life course. So we're talking about jobs because work serves not just as our governing structures, but as a primary social marker. When we're adults, people continue to use what you want to be or what you're doing as a way to understand who you are and what you care about, as well as pulling information about your identity and background. So I used to travel a lot for my former job. And I spent a lot of time on airplanes. And so consistently, the first question people ask beside your name is, so what do you do? And that tells us the importance here. When we think about not just our airplane conversations, but when we think about jobs more broadly and employment more broadly, we start to see that there is a lot of social and personal value in the jobs that we choose. So when we're thinking about that social value, I always give the example of what do you think you know about someone who, when they introduce themselves, says, I am a heart surgeon. You might think a lot of things. You might think that they're highly educated. They're terribly in debt for medical school. Um, you might also think that they have a lot of money. You might immediately associate them as a white cisgender male. Um, and masculine identifying person like that. I've gotten that answer quite a bit. And then the other spectrum is what, what do you think you know about someone who, when they introduce themselves, they say, I dig graves for a living. It's a completely different response and just trying to draw up a mental image. And so we start to see that society places a lot of value, but then more, Specifically, we also have a lot of personal value in the kinds of jobs that we choose because we want our jobs to do something in our life. Sometimes it's just paying a bill. 
Sometimes it's, you know, extraordinary benefits. And sometimes it's giving us deep meaning to our daily toil. We're also talking about jobs because every single occupation holds stigma, so stereotyping, often negative, as well as privilege, so stereotyping that's actually positive in nature. And when we're thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion work, you're probably already thinking to yourself of the ways that people make potentially negative stigmatizing assumptions about you, or they start making really positive privileging assumptions about you as a person. And that's true for every single job. And that's a key part of why we have to talk about jobs, because stigma and privilege really play into how we manage an occupational identity. The last thing that I really want to address before we move on from why we're talking about jobs is we're actually not just talking about a job. I'm talking more about occupation for the rest of this presentation. And I want to draw the difference for you. A job is a form of employment that you choose or take to truly serve a purpose in your life. Is it paying the bill? Is it because you just need health insurance? Jobs are the kind of work that um, you take on because you have to. When we're talking about occupations and what we're really talking about for the rest of this podcast is the sort of privileged choice that you get to make to say, what feeds me as a person? Because occupations are so much more than just something to pay the bill. They really are what feeds you as a person, what kind of world do you want to create around you, and what do you care most about? And it's really important to understand a job is not less valuable than an occupation. So I never want anyone to make that mistake. People work jobs all the time because of life circumstance, and especially being in DEI work, Y'all probably understand more than other about the structural and interpersonal barriers, oppressions, and stigmas that occur for people. So as we move forward, just remember, occupation, while fabulous, is not fundamentally better as an employment option. Okay, with those notes aside of why we're talking about employment and jobs, let's get into the meat of this. What is occupational identity? So occupational identity is a sociological term. Um, I come from a sociology background as well as a women's gender studies and racial and ethnic studies background. And it, the concept of occupational identity actually serves two primary functions for us. First and foremost, it helps us understand and become aware of ourselves as a worker. So when we're thinking about occupational identity, it helps us distinguish between the work self and the other forms of self. And the way that I make this tangible for folks is to think about when you go into work. How do you dress differently? How do you speak differently? What kind, of, what kind of conversations do you have that are a little bit different than how you are outside of work? So this first function, that awareness of worker as self, um, awareness as a worker helps us understand like, I, y'all, I swear a lot. Like I, I try to get a hold on it, but when I'm at work, I really limit how often I use swear words, right? And that's one of those moments where my occupational identity is at work because I realize my professional self would probably experience some pretty negative repercussions if I spoke as freely as I do when I'm not at work. So I encourage you to think about what are the differences between your work self and your other parts of life self? 
because that's already going to get you on the track of thinking about what is occupational identity and how it helps you understand the work you do. So the second function that occupational identity really serves is around the concept of identity formation. So it's really a concept of what you do is informed by who you are and your background. And who you are in your background informs what you do. So you start to build a sense of self around the work that you do. And this is true for whether it's an, a job or an occupation. When we do our work, whatever that work is, we try to find the meaning in it. And that's where you see that identity formation function. So within all of these concepts, there rises to the top one of the most important ideas in occupational identity, and that's the concept of a strong occupational identity. That is when a person uses paid employment to express their deepest beliefs, their most important values, or the identities that they hold most dear to themselves. So really, when we're talking about strong occupational identity, we're talking about people who view their job as an extension of the most core things of their world. And that strong occupational identity is probably going to hit some like little light. Like I always imagine, um, you know, like a little video game or a pinball machine with all the lights showing up. As soon as I explain strong occupational identity, I can usually see people's face in the audience and that lights go off and they think that's me. So hopefully by this point in the podcast, you are also thinking, oh man, I think that's me. I use paid employment to express my deepest beliefs, values, and identities. And that is truly a beautiful thing. When we're talking about occupational identity and specifically strong occupational identity, we find that these kinds of folks are really drawn to mission-driven work. And I'm gonna take just a second to talk a little bit about mission-driven work, because it helps us understand some of the other parts of how and why we get so connected to our jobs. So when I'm talking about mission-driven work, I'm talking about that all activities within that work are connected to a reason for existence. So really thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, y'all are doing every single activity that you're doing as a way to truly bring in the full spectrum of diversity and identities within your organization and help use that, those many vast experiences and perspectives, to grow your organization in a positive way, right? So mission-driven mission -driven work also is rooted in social change, value-based work, and the identities that we carry. So we really see mission-driven folks and people with strong occupational identity drawn to positions in nonprofits, social service work, caring work, and of course, DEI work. What's really key to understand about mission-driven work is that these are often stigmatized and challenging occupations. So when you, especially when you're working in nonprofit, right, you think to yourself, I'm going to go do great things. And then you have those interactions, like when I went to go redo my phone contract, where all of a sudden it was a stigmatized occupation, and I was trying to manage that stigma. But it's not just about the stigma. It's also about challenging conditions, right? 
Mission-driven work frequently has low pay, little room for advancement, you usually work pretty weird long hours, and you're engaging in really hard, draining work. That doesn't mean you don't love it. That's just a reality of mission-driven work. And the last piece that's so critical about mission-driven work is that it is built on having strong occupational identity present. Because if you told someone, hey, y'all, I have this amazing job for you. It's going to pay you very little. You won't have room for advancement. And you're going to be super exhausted all of the time from having to fight for social change. Are you in? Most folks would look at you and be like, oh, no, no, thank you. Right? So strong occupational identity really connects in with mission-driven work because your rewards become your dedication. It becomes living out your values and seeing your values expressed in the world and your commitment to the cause becomes a reward rather than our traditional markers of occupational reward like an intense amount of money, wild status, and you know the ability to jet off to Fiji whenever you feel like it. So the question becomes, how does DEI connect to occupational identity development? And again, I hope that you're already making some of those connections, but let me make them more clear for you. First and foremost, y'all need a strong occupational identity to be doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work, right? You need to be living out your deepest values, your beliefs, your identities to make sure that there's commitment to that work. So this means that you, you personally often represent the work and that diversity, equity, inclusion work represents you. Another thing of how these pieces all connect is that you're conducting systems and cultural change through your paid employment. When we think about the sorts of topics that diversity, equity, and inclusion really cover, and especially when we're looking at inclusion work, it's mission-driven. You are engaging in really hard work that requires deep commitment in many ways. So you're not just showing up to a job. You're showing up to a job and your deep values. And this ultimately means for many of you that your sense of self will be tied pretty strongly to your work. And your sense of self is why you probably chose the work you did. And above all, when you're thinking about the kinds of projects, the kinds of initiatives and efforts that you're working on in your community, in your company or agency, the activities you're undertaking truly asks other people to bring their whole self to work. You're asking people to tie their deepest senses of self a little bit into their work environment. And that's really important to think about. And that really, to me, is where we see those connections between the self and work. And ultimately, you are all engaging in and getting a stronger connection to your occupational identity as a direct result of the work you do every single day. And that's why it's so incredibly important to really understand what are the benefits, what are the risks, and what do you do about it, which we're now going to spend the rest of this podcast working through together. 
So I'm going to start with the benefits. I'm going to go over them relatively quickly. Here's why. It's not that they're not important and wonderful. They are. I actually, in my research, found that these benefits are incredibly important. However, very few people want to talk to me about occupational identity because they have a great relationship to their occupational identity. They more often want to talk to me about their OI because they're struggling. So I'll talk very briefly about the benefits and then we'll dig into some of the uh, more complex and a little bit harder stuff together. So let's talk about what the benefits are. And these are all present in my study. I've seen them in all of the work that I have done in the years since I've completed my doctoral work, and I'm certain you're going to see it too. First and foremost, we see that the feelings of job meaning and fulfillment go up exponentially when you have a strong occupational identity. So what that looks like is every day you go home from work and you might have had a terrible day at work. You might have thought, my God, please don't ever let me relive this one. But at the end of that very hard day, you still have found that you're fulfilling what you're supposed to be doing. And you show up the next day ready and willing to do it all over again because there's a deeper meaning at play for you. You're not just filling your time. You're fulfilling your, you know, commitments to yourself, your commitments to your communities, your political commitments, you're fulfilling all of that. And that's really beautiful. Another um, main theme that came out of my research and in the year since is that we see a deeply increased job satisfaction. So of course, job satisfaction is its own <laughs> Uh, field of study, and we could talk a lot about it, but just to briefly go over and just really skim that surface together, when we're talking about job satisfaction, we're really talking about how you feel about your work and how you feel about um, your role in your agency. So when we say that there's an increased job satisfaction, you truly feel better about your colleagues, you feel happier in your role, and you feel like you can stay, right? You don't look around and think, God, I hate this and I'd give anything to get out of here. You really do feel connected. Another benefit that comes out of having a strong occupational identity and a well-managed one at that is that there's an increase in ethic and commitment. So what I mean when I say that is when you are your work on some level, right, no matter how deep that is, when you are your work, the work you produce is representative of you. And so people describe to me in so many ways that they work harder, they work longer hours, they work without the expectation of further compensation because fundamentally they want to do a good job. And then there's that commitment piece beyond the ethic. There's the commitment piece of showing up even when you don't feel the greatest, even when you're tired, even when you went out a little too late last night. That ethic and commitment keeps bringing you back and it's really driven by the strong connection to the occupational identity. Another benefit is that there's a sense of community and belonging. Really thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion work, I'm certain when you found whatever role you're in or the first role you were in, you might have had a moment of, this is a job I can do. These are my people. They think like I think. And that's what happens. You find that you are not alone. 
and that meets a really basic human need that we all require. We want to look to community and feeling like we belong somewhere. And when you are surrounded by a group of like-minded people about whatever issue it is that you work on, it provides you numerous benefits. It can increase your social relationships. It can also increase overall and holistic well-being, which is sort of the last bucket of benefits. When you feel fulfilled, when you feel like you're living out your deep purpose, when you feel like your work is good and you are doing good work, it actually increases a lot of areas of holistic well-being. So um, physical health, mental health, spiritual health, all of that kind of comes together because when you're doing all of those positive things, when you feel really good about your occupational identity, it naturally bleeds over into other areas. Of course, I'm certain some of you are thinking the opposite, where you've worked in places where you're not meeting your deeper purpose and higher callings, um, and it probably impacted your well-being as well. So those are the, the main benefits, there are so many more, of what it looks like when you have a strong, well-managed occupational identity. All right. Hang on to your hats, everyone. It's going to get bumpy for a little bit, but I promise we'll come out on the other side together. Let's talk about what occupational identity risks can look like. So, first and foremost, there is one risk above all others. And this one risk is the one that precedes all of the others from everything that I have found over the last 10 years of my life. And that is over-identification. So when we're talking about occupational identity not being well-managed or not being managed at all, it begins with conflating the self with job function, population served, colleagues, agency, or movement. So I'm going to put that in a little bit more simple of terms because I think it's really important to make it usable. Over-identification happens when you look at yourself and say that there is no distinction between any of those things, job function, population, colleagues, agency, or political commitment, movement. Um, there's no difference between those things. They are the same on some level. And I'm certain you all have probably seen this in your work. I researching domestic and sexual violence victim advocates. And um, so the folks who provide services to those who are experiencing um, domestic and sexual violence. So many times I heard folks talk about, well, this, this victim survivor reminds me so much of me. So I'm going to do all this extra stuff. I'm going to do all of this extra work that I really shouldn't be doing that might violate our handbook sometimes because I see myself in this person. So that's what ident over-identification can look like. But it can also look like being um, that person who says, I am the most knowledgeable, the wokest of the woke. I am better at diversity, equity, inclusion than anybody else on the planet. I am the living, breathing embodiment of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that's what that can look like. And what's really important to understand about that over-identification is it frequently results in loss of individuality. Um, this is particularly true if you have a group of individuals working in the same office who are all super over-identified. It kind of becomes groupthink mentality or um, there's that loss of feeling of like a sense of true self separate from the work. Um, there can also be feelings of loss of control 
Um, this is particularly true when there are organizational changes, um, feeling like that's a direct reflection on you as a person rather than on job, on your job or your organization. Um, another big aspect that comes out of over-identification is unhealthy boundaries and habits, which we'll talk about more in depth, so I'm going to hold on to that. Personalization and limited critical reflection. What that all of that means is things start to feel really uncomfortable and more and more you start feeling like your job is taking over your life in some way, shape or form. I love this topic because I was really over identified with my job. I've actually been over identified with a number of jobs. I studied this not because I'm great at it, but because I understood that I'm not great at it and everyone at the time, everyone around me wasn't great at it. So if you're already kind of feeling a little bit resistant um, or feeling like I'm personally attacking you as I'm talking about over-identification, please know you're not alone. And the beautiful thing about all of this is you get to decide how you want to connect to your job. So let's keep going through a couple more of the risks. Again, I really want you to understand over-identification happens before these other pieces. But these other pieces came up as pretty prevalent in the work that I did. So one of the high level risks is exploitation. And exploitation can happen against the self as well as others. So when you're thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, that exploitation of self might look like taking a job that doesn't meet your basic financial need because the work is more important. Or it might look like not taking your paid time off even though you have it. So coming into work sick, for example, even though you have sick time to take. Coming into, um, not coming into, looking at your email when you're on vacation because the work is more important than taking care of you. So that's kind of what exploitation of self can look like. And again, I'm going over very briefly. If any of these are striking a chord for you, please reach out. I'm happy to talk with you more. Exploitation of others is often more easy to grasp, and it's when you have a supervisor who knows you won't say no and makes sure to ask you because they know you won't say no. It can also look like funders asking ridiculous things of agencies and organizations because they know you need the money and they know you care about the mission, so you're going to do and jump through all of those hoops and do all of that extra work together. Thinking about your own organization, it might be having other employees ask you to have difficult conversations around issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion on their behalf because they're not comfortable and you're better at it. You care about it, right? You're the one who does it as a living. So that's what exploitation can look like. And exploitation can happen on so many levels. So again, if you're experiencing it, there are resources out there. I'm always happy to chat. The next high level risk that comes up is toxic work cultures. And what's really important to understand when we say toxic work cultures, I'm not talking about the, the being a little bit unhappy or, you know, having a difficult environment because you don't quite fit in. Um, when we're talking about a toxic work culture, we're talking about a work culture that does significant and pervasive harm to you, to others, as well as to the organization itself. That toxic work culture can really look a number of ways, but it can, one of the most frequent ones that I have seen it look like is when you have one person with a really poorly managed occupational identity come into an organization or even found an organization 
and expect everyone else to engage in the same kind of exploitative and over-identified behaviors as they themselves are engaging in. And a key thing to think about is that that toxic work culture and that one person can actually shift an entire organizational culture if they have that, that sort of identity or that sort of um, sway within an organization. So it's really important to think about how and where that over-identification can really impact your entire work culture. And of course, work culture can change, but it's hard to change. So it's important if you're thinking to yourself, I'm in a, a toxic work culture for sure. Start looking for where is the over-identification in yourself? Where is the over-identification in others? And what can you control? And honestly, you might come to a point and say, I can't control any of this. And then y'all bounce. It doesn't matter how much you love that work. Bounce for your own health and well-being. Another risk that can come up is unhappiness and consistent turnover. So this is particularly in an individual rather than an organization. I'm certain all of you know that someone who no matter what organization they're at, they're always unhappy. Nobody else is as committed as them. Nobody else is working as hard as them. Um, their job doesn't have any meaning. The mission isn't what it used to be. Fill in the blank with whatever that unhappiness looks like. That unhappiness is really coming from a place of over-identification, but most people don't know it. There may be elements that are true in that unhappiness. We're talking about consistent themes across someone's life course or career span. If you see one person saying the same things over and over, no matter where they go or what they do, and they're turning over frequently, that really is an area to say, okay, where and how is this person over-identified and what can we learn from it and how can we do things differently? The last and most um, pervasive risk is burnout. When I say burnout, I don't mean that you're a little bit unhappy and worn down and tired or it's been like, for those of you who work in any kind of um, fundraising, like it's gala season, for example, and you're really tired afterwards. Um, when I talk about burnout, I'm talking about the very clinical definition of burnout in which you experience um, detachment, depression, cynicism, fatigue. Burnout, as we're talking about it in the terms of Christina Maslach, who created the burnout inventory, um, when we're talking about Maslach's definition of burnout, we're talking about very severe changes in an employee's worldview, emotions, and experiences. When you experience clinical burnout, it cannot be cured by a short vacation or a good run. It can't be cured by, you know, making sure you take time to mindfully wash your hands. That was something someone once told me when I was really burnt out and then that's what I was told on how to fix it, was to mindfully wash my hands every time I went to the bathroom. Wild, I know. Burnout is really quite severe and what's really unfortunate about over-identification and occupational identity is that if at no point that person experiences an intervention or a change of heart or a change of process, burnout becomes inevitable. I tried and tried and tried to find any way, shape, or form in which burnout is not the conclusion. But when people are not managing their occupational identity well or at all, that burnout happens and they have to leave their job functions, 
they have to leave their agencies, or sometimes they have to leave the field of employment altogether because they just can't recover. So I know that those are hard things to think about. Um, this is always the point in a number of the presentations that I've done where I just see that look of panic on everyone's face. And this is also the moment where I get to say, guess what? You get to do something about it. So now we're going to move into the so what now portion of this conversation. We did the what, the so what, and now we're moving on to what do we do with this information? If you recall back, I mentioned that we're talking about, I was going to talk more about boundaries and habits. And that's this moment right now. So get ready, hang on to your hats. Let's talk about the difference between a boundary and a habit while at work and the importance of both and what you can do if you're experiencing some over-identification or you are in a great place with your occupational identity and you just want these tools in your back pocket to make sure you stay in that great place. So what I'm talking about when I say the term boundaries is these are your individually or group developed ideal operating conditions. And it's really important. You can have an individual boundary and you can have group boundaries. But what you're doing when you establish those boundaries is clearly stating here is a guideline or a rule that I'm going to follow in order to be able to have a healthier connection to my occupational identity. Boundaries really can look like a lot of things and they are fundamentally necessary. So when you're thinking about setting a boundary, especially if you're a person where you might feel some hesitancy around deciding what is acceptable and ideal for you and what is not, please know that it is absolutely critical work of establishing what you most need when engaging with your occupation and when engaging with your occupational identity. So I'll give you an example to make this um, feel a little more clear. Boundaries can look like a rule such as, I'm going to leave work at work. Now, you're going to have to pair that with habits, which we'll talk a little bit more about later, but fundamentally you're saying, this is something I need to do to manage my own health, well-being, and connection to my occupational identity. Boundaries can look like a lot of other things. So they can include things like, I'm going to prioritize my mental health over other commitments. It can also look like I'm going to honor my bodily needs while I'm at work. These are, as I said, really necessary because it's going to help keep you in a space and a place where you can contribute the best you have to offer. Boundaries are also trauma-informed by nature. Most everyone that you're going to work with, but especially in DEI work, people are probably carrying some form of interpersonal or systemic trauma. And when you clarify boundaries, especially within a group dynamic and setting, you are providing people a clear container in which they can operate. They know what the rules are. They know how far they can go in any direction. 
and they're not left guessing if they're going to make a mistake, if they're going to get um, upset someone, if they're going to get in trouble for trying to take care of themselves. And it's utterly critical to be able to talk about that both as an individual and in that group setting, being able to talk with your supervisor, being able to talk with your training group, being able to talk with your peers and say, here is what I am capable of, here is my ideal set of operating conditions, and these are how I'm going to sustain myself in doing the hard work of culture change, both in my organization and in our broader social world. With boundaries, they have to be paired with habits. The second piece, boundaries, is where we start. The second piece that has to come with a boundary is your habit or habits. Habits are based on boundaries. They're your observable actions. So if you tell yourself that one of your guidelines is you're going to leave work at work, that's your rule you have to have an observable action that goes with it. For example, turning off your email sync when you leave for the day. That's an observable action, a habit that goes with your boundary. Habits are reinforced by routine. That means that whatever you choose to do as your habit only gets stronger by doing it more frequently. The other thing that can happen with habits is you might have set a boundary, but you have a habit that's actually opposite. So when you say, I'm going to leave work at work, but then you leave your email sync on and you keep checking it all night, you're actually reinforcing your own routine of checking your email and responding to it. And that ultimately establishes expectation. Habits establish expectation. I can't ever say that enough because people don't know your boundaries because those are your ideal operating conditions, rules and guidelines you've set for yourself or for others. What they do know is your observable actions and it establishes how they wanna go through working with you, right? So when we're talking about some of those risks of exploitation and toxic work culture and over-identification, if all of your habits keep communicating to others that you will always say yes, you will not set that habit, you will not change it, that really helps people understand what your boundaries are. The beautiful thing about habits is, if that's you, they're always open to change. We, I just talked about, they're reinforced by routine. So you get to change routine if your habits are not working for you, if your habits are communicating something that you weren't expecting, or if the habits of others are communicating something that you weren't looking for, you get to have those conversations. So I'm going to give you one other example of a boundary that then has habits connected to it because the work that you can do moving forward really is helping clarify what your boundaries are and establishing what habits need to go with it. So one of the boundaries that I have set for myself and anyone who has to report to me when I've been a manager is that I need you to honor your bodily needs. I know that sounds goofy and like a given, but I can't tell you the number of people who would say, yep, of course, I'm honoring my bodily needs. And then I would hear them talk about how they skipped lunch, how they didn't get enough sleep, how they haven't gone to the bathroom in six hours because they've been so busy, they just couldn't. Right? So make a boundary on our bodily needs and then build your habits around that. 
So eat lunch away from your desk. That's an observable action that you can say, this is what my boundary is. Get those eight hours of sleep or nine hours or however many you need. Research tells us it's a minimum of seven to eight, um, but of course you do you. Honoring your bodily needs might look like you actually do go to the bathroom and you don't wait and say, I'll just, I'll just finish these last couple of slides and then I'll go, right? You honor what your body needs. So I want you to start thinking. I'm going to pause just for a minute here after I finish my sentence to let you think. What boundaries do you have? What do your habits communicate about those boundaries? Do you feel like your habits communicate what your boundaries are accurately? And if they don't, I want you to start thinking right now, whether you're in the car listening to this, on an airplane, whether you're in a conference room listening to this as a group, wherever you are, I want you to start thinking, how could I change my habits to better reflect my boundaries? And if you are working in a position of authority, a position of influence, so manager, director, supervisor, mentor, fill in the blank, whatever it is, how are you helping your team and your colleagues establish and articulate their boundaries and build observable habits that they can help hold one another accountable to? as a way to have a healthier connection to the occupational identity. So for example, going back to being that manager, if you articulate as a group and say, I want everyone to truly leave work at work, then you have to build those habits with that team and say, okay, my expectation as a team is that y'all don't text each other when you're not at work about work stuff, right? that you turn your email off when you go home for the day, that you don't take work calls on weekends unless it's an urgent or dire circumstance. So all of us are responsible for our boundaries and our habits and leadership is responsible for helping groups establish boundaries and habits. And that is a place where you truly can start building that better relationship to your occupational identity and ensuring that the people around you have that healthy connection to just see benefits and reduce your risks. So let's start putting some of this all together. Let's talk about what managing occupational identity together looks like. First and foremost, I want y'all to think about, identify, and select your individual group boundaries and habits. And I really want you to think about and address as a collective of how diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts influence and inform the work. Because as we know, you cannot take a stock approach to everything and say this will work for every identity, for every experience, for every perspective. So I want you to think about on your team, how do issues like needing places to pray for those who pray? Right? How does that influence and reflect in your boundaries and habits you're establishing for yourself and for your team? How does um, racial background influence, impact how people are connected to their work and where, or socioeconomic background, or ability, right? All of those pieces of diversity, equity, inclusion, start pulling all of your unique 
expertise in the field together to say, how are we going to build boundaries and habits that are truly reflective and meet the need of our diverse and extraordinary organization? The next thing to think about when you are managing occupational identity together is to incorporate routine conversations around occupational identity. Address who diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts impact, and specifically how they impact the sense of self, like we already addressed. Who may need more support and resources, and who can contribute specific information to shape those support and resources? And really thinking about what that routine conversation looks like. Is that, is that in supervision meetings? Um, or managerial meetings that you talk about? What is, where is everybody feeling? Are there any folks that we need to consider of, you know, they might be at risk of experiencing um, a little bit of over-identification? How can we provide them support around that? But then additionally, asking who's doing an amazing job right now of managing their occupational identity and how can we learn from the ways that they're managing their occupational identity to help honor and address everybody in this office for who they are as individuals. And then what does that look like in a larger group setting? So incorporate those routine conversations. If you are really good friends with someone and you see that over-identification happening, happening, go check it out with them. Go say, hey, I see, like, here's what I'm seeing. Here's this podcast I listen to. I have some information around this. Like, what do you need from me? The next thing to really think about when you're thinking about managing occupational identity as a collective is honor healthy behaviors. Truly, hold them up and say, y'all, killing it right now, right? You're doing great. And you have to address the unhealthy behaviors. It is absolutely and utterly critical if you are in a position of authority and leadership it is your job. Oh, I'm coming out hard and strong on this one because research is demonstrative of this. Leadership sets organizational tone. You establish what is acceptable or unacceptable within the work environment, and you are the one who gets the power to make those decisions. So if you see someone engaging in really unhealthy occupational identity related stress, so for example, you see someone who's working 12 hours every single day when you as a group have established to limit work to, you know, paid work time, it's your job to address it. If you see someone engaging in unhealthy behaviors, for example, competing about who's gone the longest without going to the bathroom, skipping sleep, skipping food, um, or, you know, engaging in unpaid work, address those behaviors. And if you're on a peer level, you can address them too. Of course you can. However, it's really important to understand leadership really sets those, that tone of what is acceptable. Another way to manage occupational identity together is to model behaviors. So especially, again, coming back to leadership, model the behaviors you want to see. If you can see that your folks are deeply connected to diversity, equity, and inclusion, Make sure that you're modeling healthy behaviors in your own connection and model it for one another as peers. And then the last piece, of course, is building action steps and accountability. Because this information, I'm just going to be honest with you, this information is useless if you don't do something with it. 
If you listen to this entire podcast and just say, wow, that was cool. If you didn't build action and accountability, then this was just really cool information you listened to. I want you to focus your time and effort on selecting how you're going to build up your people, your toolkit, your agency, your organization. Leadership is ultimately responsible. However, as peers, find your people. And outside of all of that, as individuals, build your skill set. Find your accountability partners, even if it's unlikely. I'll give you an example. I had to build an accountability partner in my actual partner. We had to make an agreement that neither one of us would spend more than 30 minutes talking about work when we got home from work, when we were in really stressful jobs that we weren't necessarily super happy in, but we felt deeply passionate about the mission. So find your people. The other thing that I really think we need to consider, particularly coming from diversity, equity, and inclusion as a primary function for those of you listening, is that you have to really clarify, because I hear so many DEI folks talking about working with affinity and diversity groups within their organization. You are ultimately asking people to become more deeply connected to their occupational identity and pull in all of these pieces of who they are and bind them closer. I really want you to take the time to make sure that, they, that every person you're working with is balancing the, that connection that you are having the conversation about how occupational identity as well as um, social identity connect to one another. And I want you to ask, is it safe for us to ask employees to make these connections, especially for folks in marginalized communities? Is it safe for us to ask them to make these connections without harm from the organization, from the structure, from the organizational culture, and from colleagues? And if those answers are no, then this is a place where you can take action steps and do differently. Start exploring how you can build a safe environment in which people will not experience harm from any of the places that I just listed. So for those of you who are just interested in individual actions for occupational identity management, fundamentally what you're going to do is first explore. Explore where you are in your own connection and know that wherever you are in your current connection to your occupational identity is going to shift based on life circumstance. Something might happen in your life that pushes you to become over-identified. Something might happen where that reminds you to engage a little less and be less over-identified or engage in less exploitation of self, right? Always be exploring where am I at in my current connection. Then identify what is it you need to do differently if things are feeling like a struggle or not going well or they're a challenge. After you've done that identification, establish your boundaries. I highly encourage you to write out your list of rules for operating. Are you that person that needs to leave work at work? Are you a person who prioritizes mental health above all things? Right? Like whatever they are, build that boundary and then select and practice your new habits for every boundary you establish. I want you to be able to draw a clear line to a habit, at least one habit for every single boundary. Ideally, you'll have a couple habits, but listen, we're not looking for like A++ work. We're just looking for like better, 
So after you've practiced those new habits, work on increasing your overall sense of well-being. And I'm not the person to tell you how to do that. You probably already know or a trusted and loved one knows that for you. And then last, after you've done all of that exploring, identification, establishing, practicing, increasing your well-being, just keep reviewing because identity is dynamic. And we must always look back and say, how am I doing and what do I need right this very minute? So beyond this podcast, I want you all to think about and maybe start answering with one of those new accountability partners. What new habits and boundaries are you going to establish? What kind of commitments are you willing and able to make right now, today, to have a healthier connection to your occupational identity? And I always say, just so y'all know, I always say healthier because we can always have a healthier connection. We don't ever get to the point of healthy, right? Because identity is dynamic. We might be healthy right now, but we'll need to work on being healthier later in our connections. Other questions I want you to carry forward and maybe use as your action steps and accountability. Think about what kind of barriers might come up with your new boundaries and habits. So specifically, if you're working in a job that you care a lot about, but it's not a great organizational environment, what are the barriers that are gonna come up? Additionally, if you're working in a great environment, what kind of justifications are you gonna start throwing up when you have to deal with a new boundary and a new habit? Right? Like, y'all, I am the queen of just five more minutes. And then five more minutes turns into an hour, turns into an hour and a half, turns into two hours. That's my justification go-to when I'm trying to change one of my habits is just five more minutes. So identify your justification, identify your barriers. Then I want you to actually write out, think out, talk out loud, record what strategies are you going to use to overcome those barriers and overcome those justifications. And then finally, the last real question I'm going to leave you with here is what about you, your peer group, your colleagues, or your agency will have to change to support your new boundaries and habits and support you in building that ever healthier connection to your occupational identity? you might find that the things that you need to have change aren't movable in your current organizational environment. And I would encourage you to think about finding a different one if that's what's true. Whenever I've presented that question, I've always had people say, well, nothing can change about my boss, nothing can change about my organization. It doesn't matter how deeply connected you are to your work. You need to find a place that really supports all of you, and especially working in diversity, equity, inclusion, you really need the support of your, like you need to have a place that supports your whole self because you as a human being are worth more than you will ever be able to create in your agency, in your job, in the, in the larger field of diversity, equity, and inclusion you are worth an enormous amount and you deserve to be in a healthy relationship with your occupational identity. And that is also true of every single person around you. Now, 
that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. I promise you, it's going to be really tough. I am a literal expert in this subject, and I struggle with it all of the time. It's okay to struggle. What's more important is that you continue to commit to your action steps and your accountability. And every time that you don't make it quite where you wanted to be, you look at it and say, I tried hard. I'm going to do different tomorrow. And just keep persisting. Because that's how we get to healthier individuals, healthier agencies, and healthier movements. And of course, if ever you need any help along that path, I'm always here. You can always reach out to me, and I would be delighted to talk more with you or your organization about how you establish a healthy occupational identity while working in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to turn it over to Ben. Thank you so much, Dr. Gantz, for that truly phenomenal podcast. I am so happy that we could get um, you in this series. As someone who, you know, working in DNI and is doing a, um, very mission-driven work, this is a message that I know that I needed to hear that gave me a lot to think about, a lot of um, lot to work on. And I know that several of my um, DEI brother and, um, and um, fellow practitioners and um, could also use this message. So thank you um, again for being part of our uh, podcast series. Um, if you would like to learn more about um, building healthy occupational identity in DEI work, please feel free to contact Dr. Gans directly at Gans, that's G-A-N-Z, consulting at gmail.com. Um, visit her website at um, jgansconsulting.com or call directly at 612-564-3118. Again, Dr. John Anna Gans, thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. Have a great day. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. And Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the liberal arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.